Welcome to This is the Gospel, an LDS Living podcast where we feature real stories from real people who are practicing and living their faith every day. I'm your host, Corinne Lay. There are more than a few stories in Scripture about the people of God being led into a waiting space. And if those stories are any indication of what we can all expect from the practice of our faith, there will most likely be a time that we're called upon to wait and wait and wait. I think sometimes for me, the real challenge of this waiting comes as I try to maintain my faith and trust in God when I'm right in the middle of it. This week, our story comes from Isaac Thomas. His unique experience as an African-American member of the church in the 1970s sheds light on a difficult time in history, and it also presents a beautiful illustration of what waiting looks like when you do it with faith, humility, humor, and hope. Here's Isaac. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. I've been a member of the church for 46 years. I was part of the civil rights movement. I was involved in the marching and, and the sit-ins and those types of things and campaigning and, and being a, a non-violent protester for uh, rights, not only for blacks, but for everyone. Uh, that was what I was doing at the time when I was first started college. It was 1967 to 1971. It taught me patience, if nothing else, and long-suffering, because during the Civil Rights Movement, to sit in at a cafe and to be hosed in those things, there's a lot of patience involved in that and a lot of long-suffering. I first came in contact with the church through a, a, a young man that was in my uh, basic training unit when I was in the Air Force, and he gave me a Joseph Smith pamphlet for me to read. That was my initial contact with the church. I actually didn't get a, get a chance to read it all. I just got to the first paragraph says Joseph explaining who Joseph Smith was. And then my drill instructor took it, took it out of my hand and told me that Mormons were racist and bigots. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, forget that. I don't need racist and bigots in my life. And I almost ended it. <laughs> After that, I uh, went to my next duty station, and again, there was another Mormon on base that asked me for, you know, I said he'd give me a ride to the chow hall, and he asked me to go to his church with him that night. I forgot to ask him what church I was even going to. It didn't occur to me that everybody in the Jeep that I was in leaving base was white but me. And the church was out on a road in southwest Texas alone by itself, I'm squinting, going the church up, and I realize it's a Mormon church. And I went, ah, it's a Mormon church. It's a Ku Klux Klan meeting, and I'm going to be the burnt offering. And I was, I couldn't believe it. I said, I'll get out of the Jeep. I'll stand here. They'll go in, and I'll walk back to base. Nobody moved until I did. I'm walking into this church, and I'm going, please let there be another person of color in here. There was not. They had a mahogany foyer, and I was going, if I stand close enough, I can blend in, and they won't notice I'm here. I expected for the chapel doors to open, and I would enter and see the grand dragon with hood and sheet. I could not believe I had gotten myself into such a terrible, terrible situation. What Isaac found that day was actually far from what he feared. The rumors were untrue. There was no grand wizard lurking in the chapel, and instead, he felt something sweet and meaningful— he agreed to take the missionary discussions, but soon came across some difficult information that was hard to process. The first time I learned that I couldn't hold the priesthood was when they gave me the last lesson, which was added to the series of lessons that they were giving me. 
And they explained it to me. They told me all the reasons, all the reasons at the time that they were told. And I listened. And then I said, you'll have to tell me that again. And they repeated everything. And then something just said, it's okay. And I said, fine. Fine, I'm, I'm okay. The thing that kept me anchored was I knew Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. Knew that, got that witness, can't deny that. I knew the Book of Mormon has been, had been restored by the prophet of God. Can't get rid of that one either. If those two are true, then the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Church of God. There was some dissonance uh, because I, I, I didn't know what other blacks would think of me, how they would accept me. Um, I wasn't sure how the rest of my family members would accept me, uh, which troubled me because we were a very close family. And so I, 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 I was wandering in this mist of darkness, really, uh, just feeling my way but I could not deny what I know to be true. I actually joined the church December 15th of 1972 in a little uh, chapel in uh, San Angelo, Texas. Um, I remember just fighting with myself in the restroom, going, should I leave? Should I stay? No, get out of here. This is bad. No, you need to stay. This is going to be good for you. And But I indeed stayed, and I was baptized in the and it was glorious for me. I really, I never felt so good in all my days. I, I remember the feeling of being light and, and, and forgiven. My parents' reaction when I joined the Mormon church, my father was not there when I, my mother asked me, what church did you join? And I said, the Mormon church, and she dropped the skillet. My cousin left cussing. My brother said, you did what? And I just kind of sat there silently. And then my grandparents, when they heard about it, said, uh, just leave him alone. It's one of his passing things. It'll be okay. But after a while, when I stopped drinking, smoking, carousing, doping, and all those things, my grandmother finally said, I don't care what church it is. Hallelujah to it. It got me to be the person they wanted me to be because my grandmother, when I, when I was younger, I was ill, and she promised the Lord that if I was saved or lived that I would dedicate my life to the Lord. And I have to admit, I found that out and I purposely tried not to be that person, but here I am. <laughs> well, I decided once I got out of the military that I wanted to go on a mission. That was 1976, 77. And I knew I couldn't, so I wrote President Kimball a letter and said, Dear President, I'd like to go on a mission. I don't care if I can't baptize people. Somebody else can do all that. All I want to do is be able to get in there and to teach people, just to teach them the gospel. I got a letter back and it said, Dear Brother Thomas, we're sorry you can't go on a mission because you don't have a priesthood. I'm going to go, ah. Then I went, women go on missions. So I wrote him another letter. Women go on missions. I got another letter back saying, but they have to go to the temple and take out their endowments. And for you to go on a mission, you'd have to take out your endowments. So you can't go. And I said, I'm going on a mission one way or the other, okay? And then my mind said, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat, okay? I'm going to go. I'll figure it out. And then I'll let them know. 
That's, that was my mindset. I, I had not given up, but I accepted what he said. I understood what he was saying and why it was being said. But I figured there was some other way for me to accomplish the thing that I wanted to do. Because after all, the Lord gives no commandment unto the children of men unless he provides a way for them to accomplish the things that he has commanded. Well, I realized uh, how to serve that mission when the kids came home from school and they told me about this song and dance group at BYU that did missionary work and all they did was sing and dance. And they said, it's the young ambassadors. And I went, I can do that. So me and my friend jumped in his MG, drove up here August of 1977 for me to audition for the young ambassadors for my mission. But I got there and I was intimidated by all the talent that was there. I mean, I hadn't had music lessons, no dancing lessons, so I didn't audition. But then I, I was getting ready to go do baptisms for the dead and and the phone rang and it was the director of the Young Ambassadors asking me to come up and audition. The director of the Young Ambassadors knew to call me because when I was in Thailand, a group from BYU came over to entertain the troops. And I worked their lights for them and Randy Booth was playing the piano and I met him and I was doing USO shows. Apparently, somebody told him that I was there and a dancer had dropped out of the Young Ambassadors, so they had called me to see if I wanted to come up and audition. And so I went up uh, after I'd gone to the temple, sang and danced, sang and danced, and they said, yes, we want you to be part of our group. We want you to know that you're going to be in a fishbowl, that everybody will be watching you, that uh, this won't be easy. There will be a lot of questions, a lot of pressure that you'll be under. It was going to be pressure because... I was a black member of the church. And at that time, there were not a whole lot of us around, particularly in a performing group at BYU. And because we were going to be traveling all over, that there would be non-members and other people that would take me to task and take the church to task on their stand about why blacks could not have the priesthood. And I said, well, that's their problem. This is my mission for two years. I don't have time for that. Done. That was one of the greatest, one of the greatest learning experiences of my time being a member of the Young Ambassadors. I learned about more about performing. I learned a whole, whole lot about brotherhood. When I say brotherhood, I include sisterhood as well. The love and care that they had for me was genuine and real. There would be some that would leave and go on missions and they would tell me, Isaac, I'm going to baptize this many people in your name. I was promised that I would have special friends and associates that would be for my good. And that was indeed quite true with that group. When something untoward happened, like a member or somebody would not let me stay in their home because I was black, some of the girls, and got, they got very, very upset. <laughs> And I didn't, I didn't like that kind of thing. So I would have to stay in a hotel or something with the director. But they were always there. I never had to worry about my back. Ever. There were some challenges while I was on my mission with the Young Ambassadors. And there was a time where we were doing a number in Jonestown, Pennsylvania. And a girl jumped about two inches off the floor, ripped her knee out, hobbled off stage. I was the only one off stage because I had a a solo number after that one. 
And I carried her off, and the director came back and said, Isaac, go get someone that has the priesthood. And you might as well have hit me upside the head with a wrecking ball or take a machete and just gutted me. I was devastated. He wasn't being mean. It was just a fact. And really, I think for the first time, I really did feel inferior in some way because of that. Like man's search for happiness. I just didn't know what was happening in my life because I had no question about the priesthood for six years. I'd been a member six years. What's going on? And I was talking to Brad Smith, and he was my roommate, and we, I just I told him I felt like I was holding on to my testimony by the skin of my teeth at that point. But then I, I well, I realized um, we have to trust in God because men will disappoint us every time, but God will not. He may not come when you want him all the time, but he's always on time. So about June, May, the end of May of 1978, we were in Toronto, Canada, and the missionaries brought this young lady to um, the show for me to talk to. She was black, and the director kept bugging me to talk to her, and I said, okay, fine. But when I jumped off the stage... There was a bunch of anti-Mormon people that came to the show. I was surrounded by all these people that calling me a traitor to my race, that I was an Oreo, an Uncle Tom, and I just didn't need that in my life. I finally talked to this young lady, and I told her she would do more for her family in the church than she ever could outside of it. And I left. We jump on our bus, travel to Kansas City, June 8th, and we have lunch with my mom, and we sang some songs, and we get back on the bus, and we start going through Kansas. I went to sleep, because <laughs> Kansas is flat. There's nothing there. And so, and I'd seen it before. I went to sleep. They woke me up when we got to Salina, Kansas, and told me to get off the bus. I got up. I got off the bus. Didn't know what was going on. When I got back to our equipment van that had our costumes and instruments in it, Gary, our piano player, was driving that when he said, Isaac, we heard something on the radio. We don't know if it's true. I said, well, Gary, what did you hear? She said, well, we want you to hear. We just don't know what to think. He kept going on and on and on. I recognized the station. It was WHB in Kansas City. I thought he had heard that my mom had been in an accident. I said, Gary, if you don't tell me what you've heard, I'm going to be all over you like stink on a monkey. And he said, they gave the blacks the priesthood. I said, who? Don't, don't believe that, please. We're in the heartland of the reorganized church. The heartland of the reorganized church. They could be giving the cows the priesthood for all we know out here. And don't tell anybody on that bus because I can't handle it. If it's not true, I can't handle all that disappointment. No, don't want to deal with it. Got in the van. We drove to a mall. The director gets out, runs in the mall. I figure we're going to go in, pass out some pamphlets about the church, get some contacts for the missionaries and sing some songs. Done it before, no big deal. Gets back on the bus, the bus pulls in front of the van, and I see every, all 40-something people on one side of the bus, hands and faces, waving. At that point, I knew that they had told them about this fictitious rumor, about this priesthood thing. And I went, how could they do that to me? And then on the CB radio, I hear Elder Thomas, it is true. 
my entire life passed before my eyes. And I went, wait a minute, did I sleep through the millennium? I was always told it would happen in the millennium. And then I went, wait, well, who's coming in these clouds? And I didn't know what, if I should look or not. It was like being in a dream. I get on the bus and I say, bear your testimony. I couldn't think of my name. I don't know what I said. I said something and I sat down by the director. At that point, people started singing songs, the spirit of God, like a fire is burning. And then someone would bear their testimony. I am a child of God. I know that my Redeemer lives. All those harmonies from all those very talented, talented people floated across Kansas. But everybody that I had ever known, from the Laotian border, from Caramel Turkey, San Angelo, Texas, a family that got me to the church was trying to find me that day. Or, for they had been there supporting me all this time, praying along with me for this day to come, like many, many, many of the silent majority of the members of the church praying for this very, very special thing. It wasn't my letter, either one of them. It was a collective effort for those that wanted this to be done and for the Lord to hear the prayers of His children that were given in righteousness and in devotion unto Him. After the revelation, we our last show was in uh, Loveland, Colorado. The bus pulled up and there was like, hordes of people there to welcome us. And at that show that night, the audience was great. Several encores, several testimonies. But when we got back to BYU, it was a little different because there were people that would speak to me and thought I could walk on water because I didn't have the priesthood. Now that I could, they would not speak to me. There were also a time, there were advertisements taken out in the newspaper denying the priesthood revelation. That made me feel bad. And it took me a while to understand that that was their choice, that they were cheating themselves out of their own exaltation. But that was hard. But for the more part, it was grand. I wanted to write someone black, only address I had to a black person, which was this young lady I met in Toronto, Canada. Well, she came down for general conference because they were going to be, you know, ratifying and talking about the restoration of the priesthood for conference. So she came down, stayed with her missionary, uh, missionaries that converted her. I met her and we, you know, went to a couple of sessions together. And then the Sunday night, we were walking on Temple Square and we were just talking. I asked her what she was going to be doing and told her what my plans were, and we got up by the Christus, and all of a sudden I heard these words come out of my mouth, will you marry me? And I was so startled by what came out of my mouth, I couldn't believe it, because I promised I would never have a Mormon romance, you know what I mean? And she said, I'll have to think about it. I'm going, it's a good thing somebody's thinking, because obviously I am not. She came back uh, a couple of days later and said yes. And we talked about, will we get married civilly first, or will we wait and get sealed? And we decided to wait to get sealed. And uh, we got married June 15, 1979. We were the first black couple to be sealed in the Salt Lake Temple. There were so many people at my sealing, I can't tell you who was there. All I know is there were standing room, people were everywhere, halfway out the door. And when we walked out of the t- 
temple. There were all kinds of people taking pictures. Uh, it was in the Deseret News, and I'm going, okay. <laughs> um, but we were we were so dizzy just from being nervous about being married <laughs> that we, really. But it was it was a sur- another surreal experience in my life, but a great one. My testimony helps me when those when things aren't connected as far as race and understanding in the church. People can say and do anything. There will always be bigots, some knowingly being bigots, some unknowingly being bigots. In every religion, they're there. No matter what the trial is or what the circumstances or what's been said to me or, or thrown at me, literally, the Lord is there. We sang a song in my grandmother's church, and it went, I trust in God, I know He cares for me. On the mountaintops, on the stormy sea, though the billows may roll, He thrills my soul. My Heavenly Father watches over me. We are so grateful to Isaac for sharing his perspective and some of the things that have challenged him in his desire to follow the covenant path, as well as the joyful things that have led him to Christ. His story invites each of us to trust in our Heavenly Father just a little bit more and to treat each other better, regardless of the things that make us seem different. Thanks again, Isaac, and thank you for joining us for this episode of This is the Gospel. To hear more real stories from the podcast or our video series, or to pitch your own story, visit us at ldsliving.com backslash this is the gospel. And don't forget, if you love the stories we've shared or you found something meaningful in one of them, rate us on Apple and tell your friends. It'll help more people to find us. Have a great week.